Bibles, get your phones out, pull the notes up online. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. And it starts out with, after this. I'll tell you what after this is in a second, but let me finish the verse. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. That sounds like a worship song, doesn't it? Because it's the lyrics in one of our worship songs. Great song, by the way. But after this, if you were here a few weeks ago prior to that hailstorm, Pastor Dave Fokers was teaching, and if you remember that message, um, Abram had just kind of defeated an army of pagan kings that had grouped together, and they were combined forces, looked like a, a larger force. And so when God says right here, don't be afraid, maybe Abram's a little afraid all those kings are going to regroup and come get revenge on him. So maybe he's a little worried about that. So God's just trying to tell him, don't worry. I got this. I'm your shield. In other words, I'll protect you. And I'm your great reward. And if you remember that story, one of those kings tried to give Abram some reward. And he says, I don't want your money. That's kind of like dirty money. And I just want, you can let the guys that fought have a little share, but I don't want anything from you. But don't miss the fact that he's our great reward also. He's our great reward, our great shield, our great protector. So the same things God is telling Abram in these verses, this verse 1, he's also saying to you tonight, if you're here hearing this tonight or even maybe months later, who knows. But let's read what Abram's response is. Verse 2 and 3, he says, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, kind of a bad question, by the way, what can you give me? Really, Abram? Since I remain childless, and, I'm the, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And then Abraham says in verse 3, You have given me no children, so my servant in my household will be my heir. Well, if you were here even more weeks ago than that, back when I taught chapter 12, I kind of made the case, you know, Abraham is known as the father of our faith. He's in Hebrews called that. But he made a bunch of mistakes back in chapter 12. He's going to make some more tonight, and he's kind of doing one now, like literally asking God, Lord, what can you give me? He's, in a way, doubting God. Um, and he's kind of also putting words in God's mouth, in my opinion, because he's already said that this guy's going to be my heir. In other words, this Eliezer is my heir. God never said that, and God's going to correct him later in our text. But think about the promises Abram did already get. It's not like he didn't have a promise already. He was promised a land, a blessing. Remember, it said, I will bless you, and then many descendants. All three were promised, and I guess Abram's already forgot about that. He's sort of doubtful. And not to beat up on poor Abram, you know, we can all have doubts. Even though we know what God says in his word, we're people. We doubt. So we'll give Abram a little grace right now, because I think probably if you read between the lines here, because we have the benefit of knowing the whole story, we can backward engineer it, if you will. I think Abram's probably thinking, yes, Lord, I know you promised me those three things, but if I only had a son, if I only had a son, I would even trade those promises for a biological son. And he's kind of just grumbling a little bit to God, but at least it's to God and not his wife or his friends, um, like other Bible characters have done. But he's sort of getting ahead of God again. He already did that with the whole Hagar story that will play itself out further tonight. Let's read some more verses in our text, verse 4 and 5. He said, then the word of the Lord came to him. It says, this man, in other words, this Eliezer, will not, will not be your heir, but a son 
And not just a son, God says, who is your own flesh and blood? He will be your heir. And then God takes him outside in verse 5, and he says, look up at the sky. Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can. Just imagine what that sky would have looked like back then. No cities, no lights, no street lights, no car lights. If you've ever been out west or certain places where there's no cities, there's just looks like billions of stars up there. That's the view Abram would have had, and God says, that's going to be your descendants. If indeed you can count them, he said, so shall your offspring be. So God is now adding to the promise, not just many descendants, as many as you can possibly count and more than you can even imagine, but it's even going to get better as we keep reading our text. So God's going to keep adding to the blessing. His, his blessing will really be bigger and better than Abraham could have ever asked for or imagined. So Shane kind of read a verse out of Ephesians. We're going to look at another one together, and we'll get to this one on the weekend eventually. This is Ephesians chapter 3, Let's, and you know this verse. Look what Ephesians 3.20 says. All glory to God, amen to that one, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. God can still do that in your life to give you more than you can imagine or think, more than you could ask for. He knows what our ask is. He knows what Abraham's ask is, but he's doing more than that, and he will do that for us the same way he did it for Abram. Let's keep reading, because the promise up to now has been just, I said a while ago, descendants. Now it's specific. You will have a son, a son of your own. I hear you. I see you, I'm going to bless you, not just with many descendants, with a biological son. And then he kind of took him outside, you know, think about the era they're in. They didn't have cool slides and PowerPoints and fancy backgrounds and cool podiums. They had the sky. He says, these are your descendants. That's what God showed him. That's God's natural PowerPoint in a way. I bet Abram got it real quick too. So look at his response in verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. So he believed. Well, I think in a way we can see at the moment he believed. Because later it looks like he's not believing so much. And he already said, what can you give me, Lord? So his belief is kind of tenuous at best. But it's credited to him, this faith he has right this moment, it's credited as righteousness. What does that really mean? It just really means being in a right relationship with God. The same thing we should all have. We should all be in a right relationship. And we do that by faith. Let's look at another verse out of Romans, Romans 4. It says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise. And what that really means, think about the era. The Ten Commandments aren't out yet. So this is a pre-law kind of condition, he received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness, in other words, how he got it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. His faith, not obeying the law, not doing rules and regulations, faith, the same faith we should have today. Faith to trust God, faith to believe God, and, and faith to hang in there when it looks like, I don't know if God's going to act on this or not where Abraham eventually gets a little bit verses later. 
And really, I could make a long list and have a whole sermon on what this righteousness and right relationship would look like. So I just want to focus on two kind of quick ones to give us something to kind of take home and, and think about. What would this right relationship look like for us? Well, I think it would be obedience. And when I say obedience, I don't mean forced obedience. Obedience is like the desire to please God. God, I love you so much, I want to obey you. Not that I have to, I want to. That's the obedience we're talking about. In other words, a strong desire to obey on our part. And then faith, obedience and faith. And and faith would be, that's kind of a blanket word, but the faith I'm talking about, trusting God completely. Every aspect of our lives, spiritual, emotional, relationships, finances, anything, everything, faith to believe God will do what he says. Faith that Abraham has at one point, but then he kind of goes back and forth, and I think you'll see that in our text tonight, which brings up, if you're writing things down, um, our first point tonight is going to be many of God's promises, not all, but many of God's promises are conditional. We'll cover one that's not conditional later. And we unlock those promises, if you will, by our, our behavior in some ways, our, our faith and this right relationship. God promises, but a lot of them are tied to if. If, you know, I will do this if you do that. And, and the if in our case is be in that right relationship, have faith. Have faith, I'll do what I promised. But notice, too, in verse 7, it says, he believed God, not that he believed in God. That's a, there's a big difference in that one little word. Believe God, not believed in God, because many people believe in God. Even in Scripture, this says the demons believe. Are the demons going to heaven because they believe in God? No. They just believe God exists. A lot of our world will tell you, if you ask people around our world, are you a, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Oh, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. But the question is, do you believe God, trust God, obey God, have faith in God? Big difference. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 says, he also said to him, God is the he, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Funny thing about those Chaldeans, I was reading um, some verses in Daniel this morning early on my porch, and um, in the story of Daniel, when they, remember they call him in, and they say, nobody can interpret the king's dreams, and and I never noticed it before, but I thought about our passage here, it says, the magicians, the diviners, and the Chaldeans could not interpret it. So they were not a good people group, you know. We know he's called from paganism, but it's probably worse than we think. The Chaldeans in Scripture sound like a bunch of magicians and diviners and bad kind of, you know, they're on the wrong team. God called Abraham out of that to give us the lineage down to Jesus. God is really smart, isn't he? He knows what he's doing. He can make a magician into a lineage of a Savior. What an awesome God we serve. Enough about Chaldeans. Let's get back to our text. Um, Verse 8, it says, But Abram says, Sovereign Lord, here comes some doubt again, how can I know? Really? How can I know? You just kind of put words in God's mouth. You just doubted him. He's now really basically, if you think about what he's saying, God, I need some proof. How can I know? Give me some proof. 
How can I know that I'll gain possession of it, of this land? So God's going to answer. But remember I said a while ago his faith is kind of on off, on off. I would say at this moment it's kind of wavering. Wouldn't you agree? He wants proof, proof from God. He's lucky God didn't strike him dead. But God didn't because God knows what he's doing. Our second main point, and this is a good one for us to remember, even when we doubt, even when we're in Abram, even when we fail, God's heavenly grace covers my and your earthly weakness. He covers it. He knows we're kind of going to drop the ball. He knows our faith is going to waver. God says, okay, I'm going to work with you. I'm not going to strike you dead, even though I could. Hang in there and believe. He's trying to teach Abram, like he's trying to teach a lot of us, I think, myself included, just have the faith that trusts me completely. Don't ask me to prove it. But Abram did. So God's going to show him how he's going to answer. He's actually going to do what Abram's asking. Let's read some more verses, um, 9 and 10 and 11, actually. I'm going to do three. So the Lord said to him, here's the proof. Bring me. It's kind of a strange answer for proof if you don't know what this is about. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Bring me the zoo. Abram brought all these to him, but here's where it gets a little weird. Cut them in two, cut them in half, and then arrange the halves opposite of each other. But the birds, however, he did not cut in two. Then in verse 11, it says, the birds of prey came down, probably the vultures, the buzzards, things like that, came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So what this is, if you don't know what this means, this is a covenant. Covenants were really significant. They were contracts, and they had to be done in this format. You cut animals in half. You put the two halves aligned with each other. You made kind of a tunnel, if you will, of dead animal parts that were cut in half, and they were sacrificially cut, and it was a blood offering. Then you put these halves together, and... Since there was no way back then to really sign a contract or sign papers like a covenant, symbolically, the two parties that were making these covenants, and these would have been done for real estate, other, like real important transactions, the two parties would walk between those animal parts and recite the terms of the agreement out loud. In other words, it's a verbal contract as we walk through these pieces. But there's a, a price to pray when you break it, and we'll get to that in a verse in a few minutes. So that's what God told him to do. Set up, he said, in other words, and Abraham would have known exactly what this would mean. Set up the covenant and we'll do one together. So here's what we should notice when you see those verses that may not just jump out at you right away. It seems like, in a way, it, I believe anyway, that Abraham knew God was capable, that's the key, capable of taking some kind of physical form because he expected God to come down and walk through these pieces with him. And he also expected it. He, he was in full expectation that God is going to do this. Not that he's not just capable, but, he, but he's going to. And that's, we're going to sign this contract symbolically. Then I'll have my proof. I'll have the covenant that I'm used to doing for real estate and other agreements. And I think he expected it and, and knew God was able because God had already appeared. In, remember we talked in, um, back in chapter 12? I'm not going to put it on the screen, but I'll read it to you. I kind of made the case that night that God appeared likely in a physical form back in chapter 12. Let me read the verse. It's 12.7. Genesis 12.7 says this. Then the Lord appeared, appeared likely in physical form, 
to Abram and said, I will give you this land and, and to your descendants. And Abram, if you remember that story, he built an altar there, dedicate to the Lord. Then he goes wandering off in the desert. So he, he had prior experience with God appearing to him. So it wasn't out of his imagination that God was going to walk through these animal halves with him. But it was a serious contract. This was a super significant, the, the most significant contract they had. Marriage is a covenant, by the way. And it's also super serious and a binding covenant. Now, luckily for all of us, we don't cut animals in half and walk to them. We do wedding vows in, in a different manner. Aren't you glad for that, by the way? We don't have to put animals to death to have a marriage covenant. But if you broke the covenant, bad things would happen to you. Let me show you the verse I'm talking about. It's out of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 34. This shows the price of a broken covenant. This is God speaking to the, the nation of Israel. Because you have broken the terms of our covenant, I will cut you apart. That was the penalty. I will cut you apart just as, in other words, the same way you cut apart the calf when you walk between its halves to solemnize your vows, your vows to me. And in case you're doubting, in 19 it says, yes, I will cut you apart. And look what he says after that. Whether you're officials of Judah, Jerusalem, court officials, judges, priests, even the priests would have been cut in half, or people like us, the common people, for you've broken your oath. That was the price, the common way they would discipline breaking a covenant. Covenants are serious, wouldn't you say, if you could be cut in half for breaking it? That's the proof God's going to give Abram. I'm willing to do a covenant with you. So let's keep reading. Let's see where this covenant goes in verse 12. As the sun was setting, so the animal pieces are laid out. The sun is setting now, so it's been a little while. Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, kind of woke him up maybe, Know for certain that for 400 years, that's important, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Anybody want to guess what that is? Egypt. I heard somebody say it. Good job. You're smart church people. But God has not shown up to walk through these pieces yet. So Abram is kind of dozing off. It's getting dusk. So he's kind of put Abram in this kind of sleep, trance-like state to give him a vision. And this vision is a prophecy about their bondage in Egypt. But then God continues. Let's read a couple of more verses. He says, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. Now think about the Exodus when you hear this. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Remember what happened in the Exodus? They got a bunch of wealth from the Egyptians. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace. In other words, you'll die in peace and be buried at a good old age. You'll live a long life. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to this promised land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. That might be a little confusing, so let's talk about that. These Amorites, they're one of the ites I'm always kind of making fun of sometimes. We're going to see lots of ites tonight, by the way. I have to pronounce a lot of them. Pray for me. But the Amorites, I don't even want to go into it because it's some graphic bad stuff. There might be children listening. Um, any kind and every kind of sexual immorality you can imagine, the Amorites were practicing. 
And worse than that, their god was a god called Molech. And what they would do with this god Molech, they would make metal statues and they would cast him with kind of outstretched arms. And and this is going to make all the moms cringe and the grandmoms, I'm sorry, and even the dads. They would lay their infant babies in this red-hot statue and literally sacrifice their children, which would really be essentially burning them to death in this thing's arms. Small G, not a god, a statue heated to red-hot, put your baby in and God will bless us. Little G God, Molech. That's what the Amorites were doing. They weren't just pagans. They were almost the worst pagans. And you can even imagine some of the sexual stuff. But even God gave them chance after chance to repent because look what he said. Let me read that verse again. The sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. In other words, they could have still repented. They could have changed. They had a chance to fix it. Do they? No. Let's look at a verse in Deuteronomy where I get to say a bunch of ites. However, because this has also been a kind of confusing topic to some people, why would God say wipe out all these people? Part of what I just told you is the explanation. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as inheritance, do not leave anything alive. Leave alive anything that breathes. In other words, people, children, animals, kill them all. That verse confuses people, but it's because of the behavior I just told you. Sacrificing infant babies, sexual immorality, crazy stuff that you don't even want to talk about in a public setting of men and women in a mixed room. That's what these people were doing. Completely destroy them. I've given them 400 years. They're still doing it, and they're worse than ever, so wipe them out. The Hittites, and look what's highlighted, the sin of the Amorites. The Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded. Wipe them out. They're unredeemable is what God is saying. I've given them chance after chance after chance, and I've given them 400 years doing your captivity. When you come out of captivity, wipe them out. They're probably even worse than when you went into bondage. So God, once again, it sounds kind of harsh if to people that maybe don't believe, but let's tie it back to our faith. You know, we talking all night about our faith. We have to have faith that God knows what he's doing. These people groups got what they deserved. They had chance after chance after chance. And some people have asked me even before, by the way, well, why would God wipe out their children? Their children would have grown up to be grown-up paganites, they would be doing the same thing to their children. So God is really stopping the baby sacrifice by wiping them all out. So it was necessary. It was required. Did Israel do it? Not exactly. We know that story too. We'll teach that maybe someday in a different book. Back to our story, verse 17. Let's go back to the covenant. Remember, it's still not signed yet. So there's two parts. Abram's kind of in this stupor. He's half awake, half asleep. He's in like a little dream state. Verse 17 says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So God's choosing to show up in a little different form. He's not coming as a human being, not not a pre-incarnate Jesus like maybe the other appearance. But he also waits, I think, for the perfect moment because it says darkness, dusk, If he's coming as a a smoking fire pot symbolically and a blazing torch, 
that would be very visible. It would be really impressive and almost awe-inspiring. And it's not exactly the same, but I think there's some symbolism here. Think about the, um, the smoking fire pot. It says, a smoking fire pot, blazing torch. Now think about the pillar of cloud in the Exodus. Smoke from the fire pot, similar to, not exactly, similar to the pillar of cloud. Also, think about when Moses, think about the movie Ten Commandments. What happens when he goes up on the mountain? A smoke cloud covers the mountaintop because God can't be seen. Two similarities. So it's symbolic. And then think about this blazing torch. What were the Israelites guided by during the Exodus? A pillar of fire. Blazing torch. What did Moses see when he goes up on top of the mountain in our Bible and in the movie both, by the way? Burning bush, burning torch, burning bush. A lot of symbolism here that kind of just reminds us this is God. God doesn't appear the same way every time. We don't know God always appeared even in person. Sometimes he just spoke. He'll speak to Abram later in our text, but also I think he makes a personal appearance, and I'll talk about that when we get there. But back to the covenant. In the covenant, I already told you, remember, both parties would have had to pass through. Here, Abraham's kind of laying over there watching. He's a spectator. He's not passing through at all. So why would Abram not pass through or be asked to? Because God's not asking him to either. God's just doing this. God is really saying, if you think about it, and we don't really get it because we don't do covenants, thank God, like animal parts. But God is saying, this covenant is based on me. It's based on the great I am. I am the covenant. We don't need Abram. I'm going to validate it. I'm going to pass through, and it'll be good. In other words, he's kind of in some ways removing the conditions because Abraham is just watching. He's sort of like a spectator of this. And, And by not passing through those parts, remember I told us earlier that symbolically was your equivalent of signing the contract. Abraham, in a way, is not signing the contract. Only God is. Because God is really saying, it's not about you, it's about me. My word, my promise, I am, is going to sign for both of us. But let's apply that to what we call, the word covenant should also make you think of something every time I say it. What do we call, what happened at the cross? The new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant. Let's contrast the two covenants we see. Jesus' death on the cross sealed our contract. He sealed our covenant. We didn't have to do anything. We're in a way Abram. We're just spectators. We didn't do the work. Jesus did. But we got the blessing like Abram's going to get by being faithful and believing that that's what saves us. Our contract also, by the way, it's not conditional. In other words, your salvation, my salvation is not based on your performance. Praise God for that one. Because we would all fail like Abraham's failing tonight with all these doubts. It's not conditional. The new covenant is based the same way this one of Abraham is. It's based on God just saying, I am. I am God. I am Jesus. I am your Savior. I am will save you. And we just, we have to obey and believe and follow. But in some ways, we're just spectators. Our challenge is, follow and believe and have faith, the same as Abram has. 
So it's very similar to the new covenant is my point. Let's move on because if you're taking notes, I think this is something to remember because some of us have come up in denominations where it was more works required. You had to do this, do that, obey this. If you're taking notes, your salvation is not conditional. It's not a, it's not a covenant you have to complete. It's not performance-based, in, in other words. It's based on God just being the great I am. I am saved you. I am saved me. And he gives us unlimited grace, mercy, and forgiveness too, by the way. Praise God for that one. But we're supposed to be not just spectators. we got to get in the game. We can't just rest on salvation and say, okay, I got saved. I'm just going to be a spectator the rest of my life. No, that's where the spirit-fed life starts. We're spectators of the actual salvation moment, but that's really where our life begins. We've got to get involved, serve God, praise God, bring him glory, obey him, follow him, do all the things his word says. So don't think spectators means rest for the rest of your life. That's literally you, you got on the team that night or that day. So just be clear on the spectator part before I confuse everybody with strange words. Back to our text, verse 18. More ites are coming up. On that day, the Lord made a covenant. So it was a real covenant. See, now it says made a covenant. Even though it was a one-sided, one-signing, God made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the wadi, which means the dry riverbed of Egypt, to the great river, the Euphrates. So it's a giant territory, way more than Israel has right now, by the way. The real promised land is way bigger. And then it's going to tell who's in the land, verse 19. The land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites. There's those Amorites again. Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. All the ites. Thank you, Bill. I'm always making fun of ites. There they are all in one verse, almost all of them. Praise God. Now we can leave those ites alone. So now that the covenant got finalized by God passing through in the form of that torch and smoking fire pot, he gives Abraham the details. Because remember, up until now, it's been, this is the land. This is the promised land. Now he's putting borders because Abram would have known whose territories all those names meant. And he listed two rivers it, it was bounded by. He listed all the, the nations and the pagan people that were in there. So he's kind of giving him a map in a way, a, a mental map of the territory. He's, he's kind of adding, remember I said earlier that he was going to bless Abram more than he asked for? He's getting now more than just a land or the land or even the promised land. It's a giant territory with big borders more than Abram imagined. That kind of ends up chapter 15. Let's move over to 16, and we're going to start up in one. Another famous story that we touched on a few chapters ago. This is the story of Abram and Sarai, and they're getting ahead of God. Verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, because remember, she's not Sarah yet. Abram's wife had borne him no children. But, this is a bad but, she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. So that's not exactly true, by the way, in my opinion. Maybe he didn't bless her with one, but he wasn't keeping her from it. And she was going to get one eventually. Then she says, okay, we've got to have a plan. Look what she comes up with. 
Go and sleep with my slave, with Hagar. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And that was a common practice in this era, by the way. If you were unable to conceive, you would get another lady or slave to do it for you. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And if you remember, once again, a few weeks back when I went through, when Abram first got to the promised land, I kind of made the case that night that he went down to the Negev, the desert. He wasn't really told to. Because he goes in the desert, he experiences a famine. Because there's a drought and a famine, he goes to Egypt without being told to as far as Scripture goes. That's where they acquired Hagar. He got ahead of God, and now he's about to pay the price for it. But if you go back to verse 2 that I just read, Abram agreed to Sarah's kind of strange idea or her plan. But you know, ladies, in the Bible, you get a lot of blame. Everybody wants to blame Eve. I covered that way back in Genesis, the early part. A lot of people want to blame Sarai for this one, for this kind of bad idea, some people put it. But in her defense, just like Eve, God never spoke directly, as far as we can tell in Scripture, to Sarai saying, you will have a son. He told that to Abram. Did Sarah, Sarai hear it? We don't really know. And on the other hand, too, just like I made the case back in Adam and Eve's story, Adam was supposed to be the spiritual leader. Abram is supposed to be the spiritual leader of this house. He's letting his wife come up with an ungodly plan, and he agrees to it because he's a guy. Let's be honest. <laughs> Sorry, guys. We got to own this one because here's what should have happened. We'll call it ideally. Ideally, Abraham, Abram at this moment should have said, after hearing this plan, no, honey, no, 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 no. Let's just wait on the Lord. He clearly told us he was going to give us a son. Let's just wait and see what God will do. Let's believe. Let's have faith in his promise. That was ideally. Actually, what does he do? Here's the guy part. Sorry. My wife is going to allow me to have an affair and not just allow me. She's going to arrange it. She's going to plan it and orchestrate it. Sounds good to me. I wish he wouldn't have said that, don't you? Because it caused a giant problem. He's thinking like a guy, sorry. But in their defense, it had been 10 years since that promise. I think they just gave up hope. In their mind, we're getting physically older and older. Our bodies are wearing out. I just don't see this happening, Lord, even though you promised it's been 10 years. It had been 10 years. Let's read the verse. Verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. So they take matters in their own hand, get ahead of God again, which brings up a great verse. This might be on your bumper sticker, might be on your refrigerator, but it's still worth reviewing. Proverbs 3, famous verse, you know it. Trust in the Lord. They're not doing that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Here's the real key. Lean not on your own or your wife's understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. Believe him, trust him, have faith in him, and he will make your path straight. They're on a very crooked path right now. And it'll cause a lot of problem for the nation 
even to this day. We'll get to that. But let's look at the other half. I stopped in the part of four. Let's read the next. I'm going to read the rest of four and five. It says, when she, and that, the she would be Hagar, by the way, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She began to despise Sarai. Then Sarai, she gets upset because she says to Abram, you, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. Now, whose plan was it? But you are responsible, my husband. But he really was. He shouldn't have done it. So she's at least partially right, I would say. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, God will weed out whose fault this is. I think it's a shared blame in my mind. Because the plan has clearly backfired. She did conceive, but now she's treating Sarai with contempt. And we have to kind of put ourselves in the culture of the day. Because Sarai is infertile. Infertile. That was a weird way. She's seen as a lesser woman in the culture. And even the slave woman would have thought that. And she now sees herself as better than her, her master, her mistress. Her, her, she's better than Sarai in her mind, even though she's the slave. Because I can have babies and you can't. God doesn't like you. He must be mad at you. He doesn't love you. That's what all of them would have thought of these eras. But Sarai is now blaming Abram for her plan that's backfired. But once again, I do say it is his fault because if he'd have been the spiritual leader, if he'd have done a while ago what I call the ideal response, no, honey, we're just going to wait. We're going to trust God and wait. He wouldn't be in this mess. But look at his answer. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, your slave is in your hands. In other words, she's your problem. Do with her whatever you think best. He's kind of given Sarai free reign. Look what she does. She mistreated Hagar. Doesn't tell us how. Probably was really mean and cruel to her. Made her feel unloved and unwanted ostracize her, who knows. So she fled. She fled from her. So Abram's kind of doing a mixed thing right here. He took his wife's side. That might be a good thing. He took her side of the argument, in other words. I got two women in my house arguing. I'm taking my, my first wife's side. But then he allows that wife to mistreat the other one who's carrying his biological baby. And enough to where she leaves. And so he, he's not really still behaving right. God's got to get involved. God's going to get involved in verse 7. Let's read it. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. So she's left and gone way down the road now. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Sarah, uh, Hagar answers, I'm running away from my Mr. Sarai, she answered. Scripture doesn't tell us where she's running to, but most Bible commentators believe likely she was fleeing back to Egypt where they had acquired her. But she's in the desert, middle of nowhere, almost going to die. But who is this angel of the Lord? Well, if you go back to Revelation, I know many of you were here back in Revelation, we, we decided angel doesn't mean the guy with a big robe and big wings. That's what Hollywood calls angels. Angel just literally translates to the word messenger. Angels are messengers. So this is a messenger of the Lord, not an angel with wings and white suits on. But I believe, this part's my opinion, you can make your own mind up, I believe that it's likely, likely, 
can't prove it, a pre-incarnate Jesus, an appearance of God in the Old Testament in the form of Jesus. I'll kind of show you why I believe that when we read the next couple of verses. But let's just kind of review the, the Trinity for a second. If it is God, it would have to be, in my mind, you can decide, Jesus. You can't see God, and I'll show you a verse in a second on screen. And the Holy Spirit doesn't have bodily form, so that it only leaves Jesus. Let's look at a verse out of 1 Timothy, though. and It'll kind of confirm what you already know. God is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Amen. We sing that too in verses, by the way. Who alone is immortal and who lives in an unapproachable light, whom no one has seen. Remember what he told Moses? No one can see me or you'll die or can see. So you can't see God the Father. We will someday in heaven, new heaven, new earth, but not till then can we see God the Father. You can only see in human form Jesus. Then it says, to him be the honor, might, and forever, amen. So if it is God in some sort of human form, by default, in my mind, it has to be an appearance of Jesus. But let's read the verse why I think it makes a little bit of a case. You can make your own mind up. Verse 9 and 10 says, Then the angel, the messenger of the Lord, and you can see Lord is God the Father, the messenger of God the Father told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel added, I, I will increase your descendants so much they will be too numerous to count. Who could do that? Can angels do that? Not in my mind. You can decide it for yourself, but in my mind, that's why I believe this is what we call a pre-incarnate Jesus, because that's God. That's God saying, I will increase your descendants. Angels don't do that kind of stuff. But look what the angel, the messenger, just think of it more messenger of God the Father, once again, is telling her. He's kind of telling her the same thing that's good for us, by the way. Turn around, in other words, go back where you came from, and in a way that's a picture of repentance, make a U-turn and obey me, walk away from the world, turn, obey, turn back, obey, and submit. What is God telling us through his word? Turn around, repent, obey, and submit, and I'll bless you. So he's telling Hagar the same thing he still tells us. He kind of requires it. That's part of that conditional part I was hinting at earlier, which is our next point if you're taking notes. God still requires, even for us, our repentance, which all that means is, God, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, I want to change how I've been acting, I need your help, but I want to leave my old life behind. I want to change, I repent. He requires our repentance, our obedience to follow him as best we can, we pray and ask for help because we're going to fail, but we try. We try to obey, and we submit to his higher authority for our lives. Repentance, obedience, submission, and if we will do those things, they're literally like a key to unlock all the blessings God's had for us, just like they're ready to unlock for Abram and even Hagar right now. But there's some conditions that you and I have to meet. We don't work. It's not rule-based like the law. It's repent, obey, submit, and I will bless your socks off. That's what God's word says. It's for us. 
Let's keep reading what the angel says next, the messenger. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant, so he knows she's pregnant. You will give birth to a son, and now he tells what name to use. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means, if you look at the translation, God hears. So name this boy God hears. So God heard pagan Hagar's cry. But look what God tells her in verse 12. This is kind of a famous verse too. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Who wants that nickname? Hey, wild donkey man, come here. No thanks. His hand will be against everyone, everyone, not just the Jews, everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Because when I read that, your mind usually jumps straight to the Jewish nation, Israel. But if you don't know the story and we don't have time to go deep into it, Ishmael is who's kind of, he's the lineage of the Muslims. All the Muslims are also not just attacking Israel, they're constantly fighting each other. I mean, constantly. They kill each other, they wipe each other out, they battle, they fight. They're, because of this lineage, they're going to be, let's read that again. Everyone's hand will be against you and you'll be against each other. That describes kind of the Muslim nations in a nutshell. They're always at each other's throats. But some Christians believe, by the way, God should just wipe all the Muslims out. God should just get rid of them. If he was going to, he just passed up the perfect chance. He's got Hagar pregnant with the father of the Muslim race in her womb, out in the desert. All he's got to do is not send a messenger, not even really do anything. Just don't send the messenger, which I made the case is pre-incarnate Jesus, she would have died in the desert, almost for sure. She's a single lady pregnant trying to get to Egypt from the promised land. It's not going to happen. God doesn't do that. That just should show all of us, God has an open door to everybody. Christian, Muslim, unbeliever, pagan. The pagans, I said earlier, had 400 years to get it right. They didn't, so he wiped them out. God will take care of the Muslim nation someday. But they have the same open door we do. And by the way, a lot of them are getting appearances like visions, dreams. They're getting saved all through the Middle East. God has a heart for the world, not just us. He wants heaven full of ex-Muslims, ex-Muslims. They have to realize they had the wrong team, the wrong God. Their God is not a God at all. He's the only big G God. And if they will admit and Remember back to our main point, repent, obey, submit, you're welcome in the kingdom. And that's why he did not take care of Hagar and the little boy under the, the bush. He wants to give him a chance. But let's go back to Abram and Sarah's terrible plan. Um, I found a quote as I was studying. I've never seen it before, but I think it's pretty awesome. You can make your own mind up. This was a, um, a famous Scottish preacher. He lived from, let me get the dates, 1824 to 1905. Anybody Scottish in the room? I see at least one hand. This is your guy. Let's look at it. Whatever a man does without God, he must fail miserably. But look at the next part. Or worse, think about this plan, succeed even more miserably. Their plan succeeded. It brought us the Muslim problem. 
but it succeeded pretty miserably, if you ask all of us. All the wars, all the death, all the persecution that's come out of that stupid decision, they lived out this quote, I think, more than they would want to. And we're still in some ways paying the price, and Israel definitely is to this day. But here's another reason. I'm going to read 13. Another reason I believe that was pre-incarnate Jesus, by the way. Look, look at Hagar's answer now. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, to the Lord who spoke to her. Don't miss that, by the way, in your text. You are the God who sees me. So she calls him God. Other places in Scripture, angels will correct you. Oh, no, no, don't, don't worship me. Don't give me that credit. Only God is worthy. This messenger does not correct her when she calls him God. And the, it starts out with, to the Lord. So two more reasons I believe this is pre-incarnate Jesus. Then she continues, I have now seen. In other words, seen face-to-face, looked at, seen. Just the same way you're seeing me right now. The one who sees me. You can decide for yourself. It doesn't really matter. It's just more like a little rabbit trail, interesting side note. But it's likely because of all that put together to me, pre-incarnate Jesus. But then she gives the place a name, verse 14. That is why the well where all this happened was called Bir Lahai Roy. Bir Lahai Roy, which translates to well of the living one who sees me which is our last main point. God sees you. This story, he sees Hagar. He sees her misery, her plight. He hears her cry. God sees you in whatever trial you're in right now too. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're going to see this months and months later. Maybe you're here tonight in person. God knows what you're going through. He sees you. Don't be an Abram and a Sarah and try to take matters in your own hands. Just Wait on the Lord to act. He's going to act. He clearly acted in our story. Yes, it took 10 years, and that's where we all mess up, myself included. We want to fix it for him. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need my help or yours. He needs our faith, not our help. That's what happened in, in these two. They, they tried to help God. Blew up in their face, huge disaster, still continuing to this day. So, in a second, we're going to pray, and I'm going to pray that you just have faith that God sees you. And I'll pray that same thing for myself, that we would just have faith that God sees our problems, he hears our cries, we just have to have patience and faith that he will fix it in his perfect timing, in his perfect way. I don't need to help, neither do you. Last verse, and we'll pray. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old, probably why they give up hope. He's now 86 when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Ishmael leased all those problems, two different sons. And by the way, I kind of said something that might have confused people months and months ago when I said, you know, the big difference was we say the right son is Isaac, the Muslims say the right son is Ishmael. Well, it's way more than that, of course, and it was kind of implied that night, but I want to make it crystal clear tonight. Two different sons, but it's also their, their whole way, their, their explanation through Ishmael. They say Muhammad is kind of more like our equivalent of Jesus. Wrong answer, not the same guy. 
Their God is Allah, not a God at all, little g God. So there's way more problems than just the two sons, but that's where it diverted. In other words, if you don't know the story, the Muslims say, we've got the story right up until this moment, but really, and Pastor Day is going to teach in a few weeks about Isaac and having to potentially sacrifice the only son. The Muslims say that was Ishmael, not Isaac, where our Bible says it's Isaac. And then God later will say to us through his text, all the blessings, all the lineage, is the, the chosen one is Isaac. So never believe any other version. Our team is the right team. Their team is not even really a team. It's just a bunch of myth and nonsense. Jesus only. Amen. Let's pray. But before I do, I just want to give you one little hint about next week. Next week, we're going to get a little bit of out of order. We're going to flip two chapters, but they're kind of linear. They don't really connect with stories because Pastor Brian's going to teach next week. He's going to teach on Sodom and Gomorrah, which really should be two weeks from now. But because of that hailstorm, he already wrote his message, already studied, already prepared. So it wasn't really right to sort of trade things. So we're going to get two chapters a little bit early, then get back on track the next week. So don't worry if you get the notes and they look like the wrong ones. We're doing Sodom and Gomorrah next week. Don't miss it. Great story. Pastor Brian's going to give us some great insight about that story too, I think. So let's just pray that um, we would have faith, the faith that maybe this couple didn't. Lord, tonight... We know and we believe and we trust that you see us. So, Father, I just pray for all of us, myself included, that we believe you see us, you hear us, you speak to us like you spoke to Shane tonight. And, Lord, we would just have the faith that we read about and we would just have the faith that maybe they didn't in our little story right now. But, Lord, sometimes we all lose faith. Even Abraham and Sarah lost it, but he's known, once again, in Hebrews as the father of our faith. So, Lord, that just shows you how much you love us, how much you give us grace and mercy when we doubt and fail and mess up. You just welcome us back with loving arms. But, Lord, tonight, increase our faith. I pray, Father, you would help anyone here tonight as they're struggling a trial. Give them your courage, your faith. Empower them, lift them up, and just let them know personally. Speak to them, Lord, that you've got their back and you'll cover um, even their mistakes, like you covered Abraham and Sarah's. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you next week, and if you don't know Jesus, by the way, I'll be down here. If you need to rededicate, talk about salvation, have questions, come find me. The rest of you, have a great evening.